Book Three, Chapter Eight of Lady Bridget in the Never Neverland by Rosa Praed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Next morning, Lady Bridget was better and her mind clearer. There had been no return of fever, and though the physical weakness was great, and her temperature, had she taken it, would have been found a good deal below normal, her fierce determination not to remain helpless any longer gave her strength to get up and dress. She was not able, however, to do anything but lie in a half-alive condition in the hammock at the end of the veranda. All night the fire had blazed, but more fitfully, and this morning the lurid glare had died down. Only a murky haze, faintly red here and there, spread over the northeastern sky. Small, isolated smoke-clouds rose above the stretches of forest, and an irregular-shaped track of charred grass at the edge of the plain showed how far the flames had encroached upon it before they had been got under one might well conceive with what almost superhuman exertions the beaters had at length accomplished their task. A large number of cattle had been driven by the fire onto the pasture beyond the home paddock, a pasture that had so far been carefully nursed in view of possible later necessity. Bridget was bushwoman enough to comprehend the crippling effect upon McKeith's resources of the calamity, had she allowed her mind to dwell upon that aspect of affairs but her mind was incapable just now of dealing with practical issues. She felt utterly weak, utterly lonely. Although she was glad Maul had gone, she missed his sympathetic companionship to an extent that she could hardly have thought possible. As the hammock swayed gently at the slight touch of her fingers on its rope edge, her imagination drifted dangerously, and her senses yielded to the old drugging fascination. He seemed as close to her as had been his bodily shape a few days previously. She was conscious of the pull of his will upon the invisible cords by which he held her. If it were an unholy spell, it was, now at least, in her desolation, a consoling one. He loved her. He wanted her. She knew that he was passionately eager to devote his life to her. He would wait expectantly until she wrote. With a few strokes of her pen, she might end her irksome captivity in this wallless prison of desert plain, the wilderness of gum and gidea. As she lay there in the hammock, a child's clumpy boots pattered along the garden path, and Tommy Hensel came up the steps with a big cabbage leaf gathered in his hand. He opened it out when he reached the veranda, and displayed three Brazilian cherries, the first fruits of a plant growing in the Chinaman's garden. Layship, layship, I got these myself. I made for one given me for you. At any other time the child's offering would have been received, at any rate, graciously. Now Tommy shrank away, startled by the look on Lady Bridget's face, and the forbidding gesture with which she warned him off. "'Go away! Go away!' she cried. "'I don't want you!' Tommy's common, freckled little face crumpled up and his blue eyes filled with tears. He dropped the cabbage leaf and the cherished Brazilian cherries, and ran down the steps again, blubbering piteously. Lady Bridget got up as soon as the child had clicked the garden gate behind him. She was ashamed of the spasm of revulsion that had seized her. She wanted to cast away from her the dreadful thought his appearance had suddenly evoked. She picked up the cabbage leaf with the fruit and flung them over the railings into a flower-bed, where the butcher-birds and the bower-birds quarrelled over them, and the big grey bird in the gum-tree on the other side of the fence cacinated in derisive chorus to Bridget's burst of hysterical laughter. A little later, Maggie came out from the bedroom with some letters in her hand. I've lay hot on your mail, ladyship, turning out your room. I expect you forgot all about it. Yes, she had forgotten, absolutely. 
It seemed years since Harry the Blower had passed by and Willoughby Maule had departed. She languidly inspected the envelopes, nothing among them of any importance, except one. It was a blue telegraph service envelope and had been forwarded on by the postman from Crocodile Creek, the nearest telegraph station. In the last fifteen months they had brought the bush railway a good deal further up the river, and Crocodile Creek was the present terminus. Thus the road journey was now considerably shorter than when Colin McKeith had brought his bride home. Lady Bridget read the several lines of the cabled message over two or three times before the real bearings of it became clear to her fever-weakened intelligence. At last she grasped the startling fact that the cablegram was from her cousin, Lord Gaverick, and that it had been dispatched from London about seven days previously. This was what it said. Eliza Gaverick died, 20th, leaves you castle and 50,000. Difficulties. Executors, your presence, urgently desired. Wire, if can come. Gaverick. Lady Bridget let the blue form drop on her lap. She stared out over the brown plain and the herds of lean beasts, all shadowy in the smoky mist over the horizon. Then round, along the wilderness of Gidea scrub, with its charred patches afar off, from which there still rose thin spirals of smoke. Destiny had spoken. Here was the order of release. There was no jailer to keep the prison doors locked any longer, except, except. No, if she wished to break her bonds, Colin would never gainsay her. Late that night the men came back from fighting the fire which they had now practically put out. Even in the moonlight they looked deplorable objects, grimed, covered with dust and ashes, their skins and clothes scorched by the fierce heat. They seemed drunk with fatigue and could scarcely sit their horses. When they dismounted they could hardly stand. Their feeble cooees at the slip-rail brought out Ninnis, who had been sent home in the afternoon and had been taking some well-earned repose so as to be ready for the next shift, happily not required. He and the few hands left to look after the head-station and the tailing mob held the men's horses when their riders literally tumbled off them. Ninnis made McKeith take a strong pull of whisky and supported him along to the old humpy, for Colin had had strength to say that Lady Bridget must on no account be disturbed. Ninnis led him to the room lately occupied by Willoughby Maul and was surprised at his employer's vehement refusal to remain in it. "'I'll not stop here. No, I won't go to my dressing-room. In God's name, just let me stretch myself on the bunk in the office and go to sleep.' He threw himself on a bush-carpentered settle, with mattress and pillows covered in turkey red, which was used sometimes at mustering times when there was an overplus of visitors. There he lay like a log for close on twelve hours. By and by, Lady Bridget, at once longing and reluctant, came softly in to see how he fared. A storm of pity, anger, tenderness, repulsion, the whole range of feeling, it seemed, between love and hate, swept over her as she looked at the great gaunt form stretched there. Colin was still in riding clothes and booted and spurred. His moleskins were black with smoke and charcoal. His flannel shirt, open at the neck, showed red scratches and scorch marks on the exposed chest and was torn over the arms where were more excoriations of the flesh and the ravaged face how hard it was how relentless even in the utter abandonment of bodily exhaustion the skin was caked with black dust and sweat the darkened thatch of yellow hair was dank and wet the fair beard usually so trim was singed in places matted 
and had bits of cinder and burnt leaves sticking to it a revolting spectacle offending lady bridget's fine physical sensibilities but a man the man she could not understand that tornado of emotion which now made her being seem a very battleground for all the primal passions she turned away with a sense of nausea and then turned to him again with a kind of passionate longing to take him in her arms brutal as she thought him and unworthy of the affection she had once felt for him felt still alas and all the romance she had once woven about him she saw that a fly was hovering over the excoriated arm and drew the ragged sleeve over its bareness then she noticed the mosquito net reefed up on a hoop above the bunk and managed to get the curtain down so that he should be protected from the assaults of insects but as she touched him in doing this he stirred and muttered wrathfully in his sleep as though he were conscious of her tenderness and would have none of it she fled away and came to him no more she had been racking her brain since receiving the cablegram as to what answer she should return to it after that pitiable sight of her husband bridget moved restlessly about the house with intervals of lassitude in the hammock for she still felt weak and ill but quinine was keeping the fever down and she resolved that her husband should not again be required to nurse her she did not go into the office any more but busied herself in a defiant fashion upon little cares for his comfort when he awoke he should see that she did not neglect her housewifely duties at least while she remained there to perform them the qualification was significant of her mood thus she gave orders that the veranda of the old humpy should be kept free from disturbing footsteps and saw that the bathroom was in order and a change of clothing set ready for him when he should awake also that there should be a meal prepared he did not wake till the afternoon she heard him go straight in to take his bath and hastened to have the dining-room table spread but she saw him go out of the bathroom all fresh and more like himself and crossed the yard on his way to the bachelor's quarters making it clear to her that he wished to avoid the part of the house she occupied bridget went back to the front veranda in a cold fury pierced by stabs of mental pain she watched him from the end of the veranda go into the living-room of the quarters and thought bitterly that he would ask mrs hensor for the food he required no doubt too he would obtain from mrs hensor information as to how she herself had been getting on during his absence and mrs hensor would give him a garbled report of her own dismissal from the sick-room how dared he oh how dared he treat her lady bridget his wife with such cruel negligence such marked insult it did not occur to her that he might wish to see ninnis who when at the station was usually about this time in his office at the back of the bachelor's quarters after a time she heard colin's voice again in the yard and his step on the old humpy veranda he came now by the covered passage on to that of the new house and advanced towards her he only came she told herself because it would have seemed too strange had he continued to ignore her existence and he was conscious of her resentment by a curious affinity his own spirit thrilled to the unquenchable spirit in her qualities in himself responded to like qualities in her he admired her pride and pluck yet the two egoisms reared against each other seemed to him could he have put the thought into shape like combatants with lances drawn ready to strike he believed it was love which gave her strength love not for him but for that other man whose influence he was now convinced had always been paramount and who with renewed propinquity had resumed his domination certain phrases in that letter he had read long ago on joan gildare's veranda 
and which had been haunting him ever since Willoughby Maul's reappearance, struck his heart with the searing effect of lightning. He felt, at the first sight of her there on the veranda, before she turned full to him, a passionate yearning to take her into his arms, and cover her poor little wasted face with kisses, to call her mate, to remind her of that wonderful marriage night under the stars. But when he saw the proud aloofness of her look, his longing changed to a dull fury, which he could only keep in check by rigorous steeling of his will against any softening impulse. So his face was hard as a rock, his voice rasping in its restraint when he came near and spoke to her. "'You've not had any more fever?' "'No.' He put two or three questions to her about her health, whether she had taken the medicine he had left for her, and so on, to which she returned almost monosyllabic replies, sufficiently satisfactory in the information they gave him. "'That's all right, then,' he said coldly. "'I thought it would be, though I didn't at all like leaving you in such a condition.' "'Really? But it doesn't seem as if you had felt any violent anxiety about me since you came back. I heard you go to the bathroom a long time ago, and I saw you going up to the quarters.' He did not appear to notice the latter implication. "'I had to sleep,' he said curtly. "'I was dead beat.' "'Yes, I saw that,' she answered. "'Ah!' The deep intake of breath made a hissing sound, and he flushed a brick red. "'You came and looked at me.' "'I went into the office.' "'I didn't want you to see me. You must have loathed the sight of me. I was a disgusting object.' She said nothing. If he had glanced at her, he would have seen a piteous flicker of tenderness pass over her face, a sudden wet gleam in her eyes. And had he yielded, then, to his first impulse, things might have gone very differently between them. But he kept himself stiffened. He would not lift his eyes when she gave him a furtive glance. The expression of his half-averted face was positively sinister, as he added with a sneering little laugh, "'One can't look as if one had come out of a bandbox after fighting a bushfire.' she exclaimed oh what does it matter he utterly mistook the meaning of her exclamation you are quite right he retorted when it comes to the end of everything what does anything matter for several moments there was dead silence she felt as if he had wilfully stabbed her he on his side had again the confused sense of two antagonists fainting with their weapons to gain time before the critical encounter well he swung himself savagely round upon her. That's true, isn't it? The end has come. You're sick of the whole show, dead sick, of the bush, of everything, aren't you? Answer me straight, Bridget. Yes, I am, she replied recklessly. I hate the bush. I, I hate everything. Everything? Well, that settles it, he said slowly. Again there was silence, and then he said, you know, I wouldn't want to keep you, especially now. He did not add the words that were on his lips, now that bad times are coming on me. And she read a different application in the now. I'd, I'd be glad for you to quit. It's as you please. Maybe the sooner the better. I'll make everything as easy as I can for you. You are very considerate. The sarcasm broke in her throat. She moved abruptly and stood gazing out over the plain, till the hysterical, choking sensation left her. Her back was to him. He could not see her face, nor could she see the dumb agony in his. Presently she walked to a shelf-table on the veranda set against the wall, and from the litter of papers and work upon it, took up the cablegram she had lately received. 
I wanted to show you this,' she said stonily, and handed him the blue paper. There was something significant in the way he steadied it upon the veranda railing, and stooped with his head down to pore over it. The blow was at first almost staggering. It was as though the high gods had shot down a bolt from heaven, shattering his world, and leaving him alone in chaos. They had taken him at his word, had registered on the instant his impious declaration. It was the end of everything. She was to quit. He had said the sooner the better. Well, he wasn't going to let even the high gods get a rise out of him. He laughed. By one of those strange links of association, which at moments of unexpected crisis bring back things impersonal, unconnected. The sound of his own laugh recalled the rattle of earth upon the dry outside of a sheet of bark, in which, during one of their boundary rides at Breeza Downs lately, they had wrapped for burial the body of a shepherd found dead in the bush. Both sounds seemed to him as of something dead, something outside humanity. He handed her back the telegram, speaking still as if he were far off on the other side of a grave, but quite collectedly, and as though in the long silence he had been weighing the question. It seems to me that this has come to you in the nick of time, to solve difficulties. Yes, she assented dully. You've got no choice but to go, as your cousin says. There's money depending on it. Money? Oh, money! she cried wildly. Money is apt to stick on to lawyers' fingers when they're left to the handling of it. This is a matter of business, and business can't be put on one side, especially when there's as large a sum as fifty thousand pounds in the proposition. I guess from this that you're wanted. Yes, she said again. She was thinking to herself. That's his scotch carefulness about money. He wouldn't consider anything in comparison with that. You had better take the northern route, he went on. There ought to be an E&A boat due at Lauraville pretty soon. I'll look it out. Perhaps you'd like to make the start tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, yes, tomorrow. Just whenever suits you. I couldn't take you down myself. There are things, serious matters I've got to see on the station. And besides, you'll allow it's best for me not to go with you. Ninnis could drive you to Crocodile Creek and put you into the train. And Halliwell will look after you at Lauraville and see you on board the steamer. Oh, I wonder that you can spare Ninnis, she returned bitterly. I suppose you'd want Mungar Bill still more on the run, but there's Joe Casey. I dare say somebody else can milk the cows and get up wood and water. Or there's Kudgy. I don't mind who goes with me. I can drive myself. My God, do you imagine I'd put a black boy, or anyone but my own trusted overseer, in charge of you? What are you thinking of to talk like that? He took a few steps along the veranda, moving with uncertain gait, then stopped and leaned heavily against the wall. In a few seconds he had recovered himself, and came back to her, speaking quietly. "'I will think out things and arrange it all. You'll be perfectly safe with Ninnis. I think it would be better for you to sleep one night at old Duppo's place. There's fresh horses for the buggy there. I've got Alexander and Roxalana in the paddock now. They're the best.' Oh, how could he bear that those horses of the dream drive should take her away from him? He went on in the same matter-of-fact manner. I expect the answer to the cablegram will get as quickly as if Harry the Blower took it, if you send it from Crocodile Creek yourself. And there's your packing. There's not much time, but you won't want to take a lot of things. Anything you cared about could go afterwards. Go afterwards? What do you mean? I want to take nothing. 
nothing except a few clothes ah well it doesn't matter as you said nothing matters now well i'll go and see ninnis and settle about tomorrow then there's money he stopped at the edge of the steps leading down to the old humpy looking back at her what you'll need for the passage and afterwards i know what you'll be thinking but i can arrange for it with the bank manager at lauraville a mocking demon rose in her please don't let yourself be inconvenienced i only want the bare passage money and directly i get to england i will pay you back his hands dropped to his sides as if she had shot him his face was terrible at that moment she could have bitten her tongue out i don't think you need have said that bridget and he went slowly down the steps and out of her sight like a man who has received a mortal hurt end of book three chapter eight